Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I'm just so grateful to be a part of this community and uh, this, this community of Rock Point and this greater community of Chattanooga and the Love Chattanooga stuff. I'm just super grateful. Thank you so much for being a part of that. Um, and then thank you for being a part of the series that we've been doing called Two Rooms. Um, I think it's an incredibly important series. Uh, we've been talking about some really big ideas, really big things that, that potentially can change the way we experience and see faith. And the reason we've been doing that um, is because of how it's impacted stuff. What we've been doing is describing and potentially for you, I don't know, I know I have and continue to wrestle with the reality that Christianity so often and unfortunately has been presented, experienced, portrayed, and oftentimes lived in two very distinct different places. Two very, very distinct places. One of them is life-giving and the other one is draining. And Christianity has been presented and experienced and lived in these places. One is very life-giving, the other one is very draining. One of them is life-changing and brings out the best in us, while the other one uh, produces hypocrites and judges and brings out the worst in us often. One is accepting and welcoming of everyone and anyone, while the other one is judgmental and condemning. One of them is called the room of grace, and the other one is called the room of good intentions. The room of grace, uh, you find peace and rest and freedom. In the room of good intentions, there, there is stress and striving and proving. In the room of grace, I'm free to be me. <laughs> the real parts, the failures, the best parts, I'm free to be the real me. In the room of good intentions, I must hide the worst of me and only present the best parts, which always leads to a subdued, fake, and masked life. So that's what we've been talking about. <laughs> if you've missed any part of the series so far as we've been describing these two rooms, these two ways of experiencing living out Christianity, I would love for you to go and listen up um, and hear these messages if you've missed any part online or on the app. Um, because We've talked about the beautiful reality, the beautiful reality that our acceptance by God is no longer dependent on us, but on Christ and what He has done and on His incredible grace. And while, while, while we as Christians, and if you're a Christian, maybe this is you, while we as Christians can often quote that and say, my acceptance by God is not dependent on me and what I do. We can say that, and perhaps you prayed a prayer that expressed that at one time in your life. But so often we as Christians say that, acknowledge that, but struggle to live that. That that's a past thing. That's how, that's how I got in. And now do we actually live that, that our uh, acceptance by God, the, the fact that whether God ple is pleased or not with us, is that dependent on me or on him and on his grace? So that's what we've talked about. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this room of grace thing is huge and beautiful and life-giving and freeing. And so what I wanna do today is I just wanna simply talk about and ask the question, how do we get there? How do we live in the room of grace? Not just acknowledge it, not just hear about it, but how do we actually live 
in the room of grace. And if you talk to anybody who has discovered this room of grace, if you talk to anybody that has figured out how to live being defined by God's grace, what you'll hear from them is this is the most freeing, wonderful experience that you could ever have. It's not perfect. It's not like everything's easy. It's not like everything goes the way you want it to go. But man, if you live in the room of grace, if you live defined by His grace, It's one of the most beautiful experiences, one of the most wonderful experiences in the world. I know this has been true for me. I'm telling you, I don't know how many times I have told myself either in my mind or under my breath when something happens, thank you that I'm in the room of grace. I don't know how many times I've said that because I am so, so grateful for his grace. I'm so, so grateful for the room of grace. It's amazing. When I think about who I would be without grace, I go, thank you for the room of grace. When I think about how grace has healed me from the mess and the pain of my own making, the mess and the pain of other people's making and their actions toward me, I go, thank you for the room of grace. Thank you for your grace. When I think about how I could have been defined by my own sin, how I could have been defined by other people's sin against me and how I could have been defined by the hurt that has come in throughout my life and different parts of my life. I go, thank you for your grace because I have realized that I'm not defined by my sin, by other people's sin, by my mistakes, by the hurt that's come, by the hurt that's come from my own self. I'm defined by grace. And I'm telling you, it changes everything, the freedom, the peace, the joy that comes from living in the room of grace is so beautiful. And every now and then I find myself saying, thank you that I'm in the room of grace. Not only in those big ideas, but sometimes when I make mistakes, because I make mistakes every day. And when I make a mistake, I go, oh, thank you that I'm in the room of grace. And when I don't live up to my own expectations and what I wanna do and I don't say it right or do it right, I go, oh yes, whew, I'm grateful I'm in the room of grace. And when I'm starting to get worried or anxious that something's not gonna turn out or I'm not gonna be able to perform like I need to or want to perform, I go, and I'm telling you, I've said it. My kids may have heard me say it. They're like, what's wrong with dad? (laughs) I go, thank you that I'm in the room of grace. And it's an awesome thing as a reminder for me to live in the freedom and the joy and the peace that comes from that. And it's so fun when somebody else makes a mistake, I can go, hey, remember, you're in the room of grace. It's so different, it's so freeing, it's so wonderful. I love, 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 and reminding myself of that, honestly, um, reminds me of the freedom and the joy and the peace that I think God wants for all of us. So the question that I wanna ask today then is, how do we get there? How do we live in the room of grace? How, how do we live? Not just enter in, not just know about, but how do we live in the room of grace? To, to start answering the question, I wanna define the word grace. What is, what is grace? What does grace mean? And if you look it up in a theological dictionary, you'll find this definition. But the cool thing is, if you look it up in a normal English dictionary, Oxford or Merriam-Webster, they have, most of them at least, have the section that says, according to Christianity, and then it defines grace like this, and it's beautiful. This is how the dictionary defines it. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. The free, it's it's so deep, it's so big, and yet somehow we think we've gotta pay for it by our actions, by our good deeds, by praying enough, doing enough, presenting enough, showing enough, somehow we think we have, but this is the definition. It's free, (laughs) the free 
We can't do anything to pay for it or gain it. Unmerited, we don't deserve it. We think we can try and get there for some, but no, 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 no. Grace means you don't deserve it. It's free, unmerited, and it's the favor of God. That's what we want. That's what we wish for. The favor of God is his favor, his blessing, his love, his kindness, his help, his goodness, his mercy, his acceptance. That's what favor is. It's, it's being for you. It's wanting what's best for you. And grace is, God, is, is, is the free and unmerited favor of God. It's not just those things, though, that he gives. He gives himself freely and unmerited. He gives himself. He gives his spirit. Everything he is, he offers you. He offers me for free, even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And Christianity is defined by grace. There's an acronym that I grew up with to define and explain what grace is, and maybe you've heard this before, um, but, but, but the acronym G-R-A-C-E for grace is this. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That because of what Christ did, because of what Christ paid, his life, he gave himself, because of that, we, this is crazy if you think about it, we have access freely and unmerited to God's riches. And he's going, hey, I've done everything, you know, I've paid for it, everything, it's all available, here it is. Here is my unmerited, free riches, acceptance, favor, blessing, everything I am, here it is. That's the message, that's the foundation of Christianity. It's awesome, it's awesome. There's so many scriptures that talk about this. Man, if you read the New Testament and even the Old Testament, you see this idea and you see this word and you read grace all over the place. I wanna read one passage that, that explains it and sort of summarizes what I've just said and sort of summarizes what we've said so far in this whole series and it's in Titus chapter three. Titus chapter three, verse four, it says this, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Christianity teaches that God led with kindness and love. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not, here it is, it's unmerited, we couldn't pay for it, not because of our righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy, God's riches at Christ's expense, um, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is awesome. What does that mean? I think it means that something was born in us when we accepted his grace. When you accept his grace, something is born in you, and he actually, and I don't know how to fully explain this, he puts his spirit in you for real, like in some real way, and something is born in us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously. Grace is full of generosity. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, God's riches at Christ's expense so that having been justified made just as if I'd never sinned by his grace. Justified by his grace that because of his grace, not because I'd stopped sinning, not because I didn't do the wrong things, not because I did the right things, no, 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 no. He made me, he made you. When we trusted him, suddenly he's made you just as if you'd never sinned. What if we could live from that place by his grace? that we might become heirs having the hope 
of eternal life. It is a beautiful reality. And I'm telling you, according to Christianity, God is continually, no matter where you're at, what you've done, what you've struggled with, what you believe, God is continually drawing you and calling you and inviting you. Would you come into the room of grace? Would you accept my grace? Now, just to clarify, and this is so important, because when we live in the room of grace, then we're not defined by our mess, our mistakes, our failures, our efforts, good or bad. We're defined by His grace, and we can find the freedom and the joy and the, the, the peace that comes with that, but I, I do want to clarify, because, and I've said this sort of already, but, but grace is not just the door in. Sometimes as Christians, we think, okay, there's grace to forgive my sins, but then I better work at it. Then I better prove it. Then I better make sure that I please him after that because grace gets me in, but gosh, what my effort keeps me in. That's not Christian. Christianity teaches that grace is not just how you enter. Grace is how you live. It's not the door of grace. It's the room of grace that we live in, that we can live our lives not defined by our mass failures or efforts, past, present, and future, but we can live our lives defined by his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, the free, unmerited favor of God, the favor of God, the favor of God. That's what he's inviting us into. But again, how do we get there? How do we live in the room of grace? How do we live defined by his grace? Well, the book that I've been referring to over and over in the series, um, that, that if you wanna do a deepest dive into some of these concepts, I would highly encourage you to read this book. It's called The Cure by John Lynch, Bruce McNichol, and Bill Thrall. It's a fantastic book, and it dives deep into this. I've referred to it. They talk very beautifully and creatively about this room of grace <clears throat> and this room of good intentions. And they explain that the path to get to the room of grace, the road to the room of grace is called trusting God. And I think it's a beautiful picture because how do we get to that? How do we live in grace? It's simple. You trust God. Trusting God. That when we trust God rather than trusting our own self-effort, we find the room of grace. That when we trust what he has done, trust that, that what he says is true, trust that, that he is who he says he is, we can literally live freely and peacefully in his grace. Living by grace all comes down to trusting God. So here's what I wanna do for the, the rest of our time together. I wanna talk about trusting God. Those two ideas, trusting God. I'm gonna start by doing my best, which I'm gonna fail at, but doing my best to explain and paint a picture of why God is trustworthy. I'm gonna do my best, and again, I'll fall short, but I wanna explain why God is worth trusting. And then I wanna show you that, that throughout the history like of, of God relating to people and us relating to God, the way that happens, the way we live, has always been based on trusting Him. It's never been based on anything else. I'll show you this amazing passage that describes that. And then I'm gonna end by asking you simply and clearly, will you trust him? Will, will you trust him? If he's trustworthy and a relationship with God and finding his grace is based on trusting him, then I'm gonna ask, will you trust him?
Will you come back to the place where you can trust his grace? So let me start by trying to paint this picture that Christianity paints and teaches that God is worth trusting. Again, I wanna acknowledge that there is no way I can paint an appropriate picture of the God that is so trustworthy because no words, no vocabulary, no amount of words, no amount of illustrations could ever do it justice. He is way beyond anything we can imagine and goes so far beyond our understanding of his trustworthiness, it's huge. And I'm glad that I'm not the only one that will struggle with explaining this. Even John, one of uh, Jesus' closest followers, when he wrote the account of Jesus, and the whole reason he wrote his book, it's known as John, it's a very creative title uh, that they used in the Bible, um, John, the Gospel of John. But in that book, he, he states his goal in writing, the reason he wrote was so that people will trust Jesus that people will believe in him. He actually writes that. And then right after that, he says this in John 21, verse 25. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So I'm glad that a guy who wrote the Bible also struggled to describe the magnitude and the beauty of who God is and how trustworthy he is. But let me, let me, let me try. And this attempt, again, is gonna fall short, especially because... He gave us the greatest picture of his trustworthiness when Jesus died on the cross for us and split the calendar in two and defined every date from then on. I mean, your birthday is defined by Jesus' birth and death. Like your birthday, if you were born in 1992, that means you were born 1,992 years after Jesus. His act, his coming to this earth, and then his dying on the cross showed us that incredible love that he's trustworthy. And think about it. If someone's willing to die for you, you could probably trust them. I think I, I would want to. It shows that they're for you. They're willing to give everything for your good. You could probably trust them. One of the greatest defenders of the room of grace is a guy by the name of Paul, Paul the Apostle. And he walked around, after meeting Jesus, he went around the Mediterranean room kind of explaining and inviting people into this room of grace. And he talks about how Jesus being given for us makes him trustworthy. This is what he says in Romans chapter eight, verse 31. He says this, what then shall we say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If it's true that God is really for you, if he's for us, who can be against us? And then he says this, fascinating. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I mean, if he was willing to die, won't he give everything? If God was willing to not even spare his own son, wouldn't he along with him give us everything? If someone does that, I, I tend to trust them. But it goes further. He continues in verse 33. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Jesus died for you. He chose you. Who can bring any charge against them? It is God who justifies. That if we have accepted what Christ has done, accepted his grace, if we trust him, then, then God has justified. There is nothing that can, no one that can bring a charge against us. I love verse 34, he continues, he says, who then is the one who condemns? No one, no church, no street preacher, no Christian can ever condemn anyone whom God has justified. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. 
Christ Jesus who died, and then this is so cool as well, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think about that. Jesus, like Jesus Christ, is your advocate. Hey, I like that. I want that, that I can trust him. He's advocating for me. He's advocating for you. He's interceding for you. Isn't that incredible? That's what he does. And then Paul paints this beautiful picture, this beautiful picture of God's incredible love. And this kind of love, I think, makes me want to trust him. Verse 35, he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then jump to verse 37 because he answers this question bluntly. He says, no, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of what Jesus did, we are above all these things. This is the kind of grace, this is the kind of love, this is the kind of giving, this is the kind of I am for you actions that God has given. This is why we can trust him. Look at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, that Jesus died and rose again to conquer death so that even the thing that we fear the most, death, we're above. I'm gonna trust him. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, spiritual things, neither the present nor the future. But what if I mess up? Neither the present nor the future. What if I sin? Neither the present nor the future. Nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is a beautiful picture of a God that invites us trust me. Would you trust me? And if, if this stuff is true, and I believe it is, and Christianity obviously clearly portrays it that way, then I want to trust him. And living by, being defined by that kind of love, that nothing can separate us. What if I, what if I mess up? No, nothing. Not my mistakes, not my bad effort or good effort. Nothing can separate me from his love, being defined by that kind of love, that kind of grace, where my weaknesses, my self-effort, all of that stuff doesn't, doesn't impact his love for me. But no one can bring a charge against me because in my trusting him, I am justified. If I am defined by that, it's so freeing and empowering. It's amazing. That's what living in his grace is like. And Christianity teaches that trusting in a God who literally has given himself, that he's always, always inviting us to live in that room of grace. And living that way, the way we get there has always been about trusting God. It's always been about trusting God. Let me, let me show you how it's always been about trusting God. God is trustworthy. Christianity portrays it, and that was not even a good description of it, but man, if that stuff's true, I wanna trust him. And then what shows like, the Christianity describes that, that, that it's always been about trusting him. You get there, you, you, you live in the room of grace simply by trusting him. Um, in the first century, right after Jesus died and rose again, and then his followers were going around inviting people into this room of grace saying, hey, this is about it, this is how it works. Would you come, would you trust me? Would you trust him? Would you come and trust him? Because that provides a way for you to discover this incredible grace, this God's riches at Christ's expense, God's unmerited free favor that he wants to give 
forgive you. It's by trusting him. Well, there were a group of people that said, it can't be that simple. I, I, I need to do something to earn this. And they're going, no, that's not grace then, that's wages. No, 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 it's not that. And so these people were struggling with that. And so one of the followers of Jesus decided to write down a, a description of how it's about trusting him. It's not about self-effort, it's about trusting him. And he wrote this. We actually have a copy of this letter, which is amazing. Um, it's, it's recorded in our Bible, and we know it as the book of Hebrews. And in this book, he describes all of this. It's not about doing it. It's not about earning it. It's about trusting him. And in the the 11th chapter of this book, um, he gives this beautiful picture of, of this description of how trusting him actually pleases him. And this group of people were going, well, I have to please God. I have to please God. And he's going, no, 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 no. You can't please God. The only way you can please God, if you try and please God, you're gonna live your life stressed and worried. Did I do enough? Is this okay? Well, what about that thought? What about that word? I didn't say this perfectly. Oh no, I don't please God. And he's going, no, 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 no. It's not about that. Let me show you how to please God. And then he literally says, this is how you please God. If you trust him. <laughs> if you simply trust him. Let me show you in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, he says this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, he's saying, having faith pleases God. If you simply trust him, you please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That word faith, uh, when this author wrote this, he used Greek, he wrote it in Greek, and the original Greek word for that is pastuo. And pastuo literally means this, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. And he's saying that, that, that if I completely trust him, his work, his grace, his strength, and I rely on him, not me, I don't trust me or rely on my self-effort, that pleases him. But what if I don't do it right if you trust him? What if I, what if I mess up? That's not the point. I, did I say anything about that? <laughs> if you trust him, you please him. And don't rely on myself. That faith is what pleases him. I think humility is a good synonym for that kind of faith. Because humility says this, I don't trust me, I trust him. That's what humility says. I don't trust me, I trust him. Faith says, I trust him, I don't trust me. I think they're synonymous. And when we have complete trust and reliance in God, that's faith. This says, we please him. Now, I'm always careful to say something like complete trust and reliance because that may sound like I'm telling you, well, you better have perfect faith because only with perfect faith then you'll be able to please him. Let me, let me just say this very clearly. I don't think a human being can have perfect faith. Do you know why? Because we're imperfect. And so what I think he's calling us to do is to have imperfect faith in a perfect God. Because if I have to have perfect faith, I better, ooh, I better do it right, know everything, do everything, believe perfectly, oh, I'm relying on me again. And what he's saying is, no, without faith in him, not in me and my ability, without faith in him, it's impossible to please God. But if I have reliance on him, trust in him, I please God. He continues in that verse, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he says, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Anyone who comes, and I love that instruction and that promise because he says, if we believe that he's there, 
and we trust him. If we believe that he's there and we trust him, we can know that we please him. <laughs> How do you know you please God? Well, do you trust him? Normally the answer is, well, have you prayed enough? Have you done enough? Have you given enough? Have you attended church enough? Have you, no, 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 no. How do I know if I please him? Do you trust him? Because then the grace of God explodes into reality in our life. And it says there, then we know that we please him and he rewards anyone who seeks him. And then the author does this really cool deep dive into like the history of faith. And he goes story after story after story. If you read the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, we won't read the whole thing because there's too much in there. But story after story, he, he explains how all these heroes of faith that you think, that was the perfect guy, that was the perfect woman, they lived it out perfectly. No, 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 none of them did. But this, this chapter shows why they pleased God. What was it about them? Let me show you, verse seven, he jumps into one of the stories. He says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, by trusting God, by relying on God. That's what he says. That's what made Noah what he was. Was he perfect? No, he messed up. There's record of the mess that he made. If you know his story, there's some weird things that he did. But by faith, this is what happened. Abraham, the next verse, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. And even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he did that. Jump to verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because, she, and I love this description. How did she have faith? Because she considered him faithful. He was trustworthy who made the promises. She trusted him, not because she, and she messed up as well. She laughed the first time. She was like, I can't trust that. But she stopped believing in her own ability and effort and trusted him. And over and over, the stories go on and on and on about all these people who trusted, who had faith, who pleased God because they trusted God. Not because they did everything right. I'm telling you, you go read these people's stories. Everyone I've mentioned, I know of parts of their stories recorded in the Bible where they messed up. And every one of these people, none of them were perfect. And we revere them as heroes of the faith. Do you know why they're heroes? Because they trusted God, not because they did it right. By faith and stories of people who did this by faith is recorded 21 times in this chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And we can see from this context of this whole chapter and the context of this whole series that when we try to please God, we end up relying on ourselves and our own human effort and we can't please Him. And we're worried, did I do enough? Is this enough? Am I better than them? And it ends up being this mess. We end up stressed and proving and trying to be something, but I'm telling you, when we simply trust Him, <laughs> when we simply trust Him, He looks at us and He says, you please me. <laughs> this is the craziness and the beauty of Christianity. Not that we, when we trust ourselves or even our own strength of faith, but when we simply trust Him, He tells us, you please me. Me And he goes on and on and on. By, by faith, this guy did this. By faith, this woman did this. By faith, this person did this. Over and over and over. And then in verse 39, after telling all these stories, he kind of caps it off by saying this. These, verse 39, 11, 39, these were all commended for their faith. Not for their actions. Not for their brilliance. 
not for their strength, not for their ability not to do it wrong, not for their ability to get it all right, but these were all commended for their faith. They trusted God. They trusted God. Christianity clearly, if you read that, teaches that connecting with God, pleasing God has always been about trusting God. And then he says this, and this is so interesting. He says, yet none of them received what had been promised since God, and listen to this, he speaks about you and me, since God had planned something better for us. All these heroes of faith didn't even get the beauty of it was of what you know what they were living towards because God had planned something better for us. Do you know why? Because Jesus had not yet come. He had not yet lived and died, and he had not yet exploded grace onto this planet through the cross. He had not yet just given this beautiful picture and big, huge invitation into this room of grace so that we could experience and see the fullness of God's grace. We get to receive something better. It's amazing. And then, based on all that, he gives us an instruction. And so many times we read this instruction wrong, but, but, but look at what he says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. He says, therefore, because of all of that, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, referring to all these men and women who by faith pleased God, it's almost like they're watching. It's almost like they're the example. Therefore, since we're surrounded by all of them, let us Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, everything that keeps us from the freedom and the joy and the peace and the life that comes from His grace. Let's put that aside and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And when we read stuff like that, we're like, okay, well, then I better run and, and do it right. But He tells us how we're supposed to run. This is how, looking, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not fixing our eyes on my ability to do it right, not fixing our eyes on my effort, no, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. You know what the word perfecter means? It's such a cool word. It means this. One who makes possible the successful completion of something. That's a perfecter. And it says that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. That's why we fix our eyes on him, not us. He is saying that Jesus is the one who initiates and makes our faith successful <laughs> and complete. I'm telling you guys, God is inviting us into the room of grace. He's saying, would you come, would you come? I've given everything, God's riches at Christ's expense, free, unmerited favor of God is waiting for you. And the way to find it, the way to not just accept it and hear about it, but the way to live in it is to go, I trust you. Trusting him is the way to live in the room of grace, not just trusting him to forgive your past sins, but trusting him now in the midst of my own mess and weakness and failures, now to live in that trusting him that allows us to say, oh yes, I'm in the room of grace. And the freedom and the strength and the empowering that comes from living in that place changes us. Grace is so powerful when we can live in it. When we have to try to earn it, it's no longer grace. Grace is so powerful. And if we can, if we can just simply trust God, 
it becomes real in our lives. When we focus on trying to please him, we end up living in stress, striving and proving and wearing masks and we end up subdued, tired and unsuccessful and fake. But when we trust him, he tells us, you please me. What if we could live our lives knowing, I please God. (laughs) I please God. Well, how do you know? Well, the Bible tells me if I trust him, I please him. Well, have you done enough? Don't need to. Wait, what? I please God. What if we could live from that place? Wouldn't that change things? (laughs) When This is what it says. When I trust him, I please him, and I can live in the peace and the joy of knowing that I please God, which allows me to be who I was meant to be. That's pretty amazing. By trusting Jesus, not our own self-effort, not our own ability, not our own work, by trusting Christ, his love, his sacrifice, his cross, his spirit, his transformation, his grace becomes a reality in our lives. His forgiving grace, not just for the past sins that we are okay to say, yeah, I used to sin, but for today's sin. Tomorrow's sin, his forgiving grace becomes a reality. His rescuing grace. And I love his rescuing grace because sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, now what? I've messed up. What about where it's going? Well, he's a genius and an expert at rescuing. His rescuing grace becomes a reality when I trust him. His transforming grace, me trying to, to, to become what I want to become, what I want, think he wants me to become, his transforming grace becomes a possibility and a reality in my life when I trust him. He changes me, his spirit's in me, and his empowering grace to live the life he's called me to be, to live, to be the man, the father, the husband, for us to be the men, the women, the mothers, the fathers, the leaders, the, the husbands, the wives that we wanna be, his empowering grace. Grace is one of the most powerful things in the whole world. As a result of his grace and his invitation to trust him, we can live with the peace and the life and the joy and the freedom that Jesus died to give by his grace when we are living in his grace, defined by his grace. How do we get there? by trusting him, simply by trusting him. I'm telling you, God is continually inviting us to the place where we can trust his grace. Let me say that again. God is continually inviting you to the place where you can trust his grace. And maybe you used to trust it and you've kind of walked away. He's inviting you back to the place where you can trust his grace. Maybe you've never trusted his grace. He's inviting you to to taste, to experience this place where you can trust his grace, where we can live our lives firmly in the room of grace, and his grace can become alive in our lives and help us breathe. And when we do something dumb and say something dumb, Like me, we can go, oh yes, I'm in the room of grace and I please him. That's what he's invited. That's Christianity. That's the room of grace. We're gonna end with the band singing a song and 
in the song, it mentions a little bit of what I've said throughout this, this message. And then what it does is the song kind of says those words, the lines are, I trust your heart and your intentions, I will lean upon your grace. And it talks about how there is one who has invited us and called us to his grace. And then the song kind of responds and goes, wow, if that's true, then, then I, I love you. Wow, if that's true. And so we want to sing the song, to give us a moment to just respond to this invitation that God is continually saying, would you come and taste this grace? Would you come into this room of grace? Would you trust me? Would you come to the place where you trust my grace? And so we want some space just to, just to hear that. And then if you're willing and if you're at the place where you wanna respond, then respond. If you wanna sing the words out as they say it and respond to this God of love, then respond. If you wanna stand, great. If you wanna sit, great. But hear this and just take some time and ask yourself this question because this is the question I wanna end with. Here it is. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Because that's how, that's how we live in his grace. Would you take some time and ask yourself the question, will I trust him truly? Will I trust him not just for the past but for the now and for the future? Will I come to the place where I trust his grace? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. <laughs> I know, God, that I can't explain your grace and portray your grace and express your grace well enough. I know that. I just know that because it doesn't even come close to what I've experienced. I'm so grateful for the life you've, you've changed in me. I'm so grateful for rescuing me from my stupidity and my mistakes and my lack and my weakness. And I know how my lack and my weakness have hurt people around me and I'm so grateful for your forgiving grace, for your rescuing grace, for your transforming grace because I'm different because of it. And when I mess up again, the forgiving grace is still there and the rescuing grace is still there. Thank you for the room of grace and thank you that I didn't have to do anything or earn anything or pay anything to get in there. But it's the free, unmerited favor of God. Thank you that it's at Christ's expense, your riches, Father. And Father, my prayer is that we will all experience it just feel the power of it, that it will change our lives and we will then carry it with us and give it to others. But God, we do lean on your grace. Thank you for continually inviting us to the room of grace. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.
we thank you that we have your love to lean on. Even when we fail, even when we're weak, and we can give you nothing. We can rest in your grace. We just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.